live from Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. Uh, I'm Sean McCraney, your host. Our prayer tonight is going to be given by Darren Pinkerton. Then we're going to talk to he and his wife. Lord God, we come to you now. We love you. We're thankful for you. Everything you do for us each day. And Lord, we ask you just to... Uh, just to um, put the words in Sean's mouth that we all need to hear, those watching live and those that will watch in the archives. And we ask you just to um, bless all that are watching and um, just help us to be a light in, in a world of darkness and just uh, to love those as you love us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Brother Darren, Jen, come on, stand, uh, grab that mi microphone because it'll pick you up better. I hope we don't get any feedback. And stand close to me. And uh, why don't you just introduce your wife and tell us about the move and everything else? Okay. Um, well, this is my wife, Jen. I'm Darren. Um, wow, how are we going to do this? Uh, this started in like end of last year, early this year. And uh, God just kind of opened doors and put things on my heart. I shared with her. And kind of worked on her heart, and he just started clearing paths, and uh, he just opened up every door and carried us every, every step of the way, and he's still carrying us, and so uh, it's been tough, uh, to say the least, <laughs> um, and, but I know that through all the things we've, we've struggled with, he's there, and it's he that we lean on, and so we say a lot, when we pray nightly, it's like we lean on him, we come together, and it's him that we, we it, it just, it's all about him. So, That's beautiful. Yeah, so we uh, just got here yesterday, and so we're looking from? forward to From uh, Kirksville, Missouri. If you've ever been to Missouri, um, you should visit sometime, maybe? Um, no. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> there's some good people there. No, I love them. It's actually a better place to live than it is to visit. Oh. Because there's nothing to do there ex except drink, so Wendy might like it. Oh, excellent! Oh, oh, oh. We're starting off on the right no, foot, no. I tell you. <laughs> but we're just really glad that we're here. We're glad to... Yeah, however God will use us in any way. To, you know. Quick religious history? Um, grew up uh, extreme, I'm going to say this, I'm going to get it for this, extreme hardcore Baptist uh, growing up and uh, scared to death growing up until I realized to uh, come to a certain point with that um, God is love and he loves me. And it changed my life once wow. I found out he loved me. Wow. And, I, and he showed me he loved me. Mm. And after that, I was like, no, I, I can't. And so um, that's kind of mine you know, extreme, and, uh, and um, I've had some experience in Mormonism, so God put the love for the LDS in my heart, mm. and that's another reason, awesome. so, and she was kind of Jen? different than mine. <laughs> I was raised LDS, fourth or fifth generation Mormon, mm. and my parents both grew up in Utah. I attended BYU for two years. I was hardcore, true believer, and when I left the church, I took my name off the records in early 1997, because I was hiding my coffee pot from my uh, visiting teachers, and I thought, you know, if I'm not, if I don't feel guilty about drinking wine or coffee in my own house, then maybe I should just jump off the fence, because they always say don't be a fence sitter, so I jumped off, mm. and I was scared to death. That was one of the scariest nights of my life when I decided to do it, wow. but then it was, then, you know, period of anger, a lot mm -hmm. of anger, a lot of feeling of betrayal, and then, you know, a lot of period of scorched earth and just kind of turning my back on God for a long time, mm. so, yeah, it's been a kind of a, a journey back. So excited to see what God does uh, with you guys and love your heart for him and him alone. And you're just together as a couple moved out here. It's exciting. 
So uh, we're here and look forward to seeing what happens. Thank you. Thank we're you. really All happy right. to be here. Thanks, you guys. And thanks for the prayer, Darren. It's beautiful. Uh, remember, we have a new book out now. Uh, it's called Knife to a Gunfight, Misinterpreting the Purpose and Place of the New Testament. It's uh, what I feel is a reasonable critique of the idea of sola scriptura. And uh, so we invite you to take a look at that by going to www.hotm.tv in the bookstore. And now, how about, it, just when Derek got focused in on me, how about a moment from the Board of Direction? That is a quick intro. Listen, I recently had a good friend of mine ask me why God, who can do anything, right, we hear that, had to have Jesus suffer, bleed, die for sin. I mean, what's the deal, really? Do we have to go to this archaic, ancient, kind of pagan rite of bloodletting and all this stuff? And it's a good question, and it seems to float around uh, in circles that I deal with every, uh, every now and again. So I thought I'd, I'd cover why, I think. And uh, I said that it must have something to do with God being fair and God being good and not being a mean despot, uh, but working justly with the human race, working with us justly. So, and since he is just and fair, instead of snapping his fingers, like he could do, like we say, and fixing sin without anyone doing anything, he took care of it in and through this world that we live in, this material world, this human world, which is based in time and space. This world in which we live is founded on time and space. See, all physical, material human beings begin life, we become subject to increments of time. Um, perhaps the best way to quantify Earth life, to this, set it up and, and give it a, a quantity, is in its increments of time, okay? He lived for five minutes on this Earth. She lived for 65 and a half years on this earth. They're all increments of time. So long as we are existing in this realm, we are existing in time and in material space. The moment something begins to thrive under the auspices of time, the, the minute it begins to thrive in time and in space, where it takes up space, it's experiencing physical, material existence, right? The quality of this time is an entirely different discussion. So I'm not talking about quality of time, but time itself is what material life consists. I'm building up to something. Every second, minute, hour, day, month, year, decade are increments of time that capture and frame the essence of existence for individuals and for human race. So when an individual dies, time stops for them here and existence in another realm begins or continues there. So time, as Benjamin Franklin said, Franklin's big in this state, uh, is the stuff of which life is made. That's how Franklin put it, okay? Then here in this time continuum, we live it through material existence. We live in bodies and all living things that are subject to time here have physical material bodies, whether it be an amoeba, a virus, a human being, a monkey, an earthworm, all things which live in the realm of time 
are housed in some sort of material form. So we have time and space, we have time and material. When a body or the form of the flesh dies, uh, the time increments are over, life is over. Okay, now listen. According to scripture, the very life in these forms or bodies is in the blood. Leviticus 17.11 says it well, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. That's what it says. The life in the flesh is in the blood. Apparently, as noted all the way back in Leviticus, what keeps our fleshly forms, whether you're an earthworm or whatever, human, I guess mammal, I'm not sure about all biology, I'm not that smart, but uh, through increments of time, it's the blood that is coursing through us that gives us that life in time and space. That's what Leviticus says. That's how God sees it. So blood, it brings oxygen to the frame and, and oxygen to uh, places where uh, waste accumulates to wash it away and get it through our system and out of our system. Stop the blood from going to a part of the form and that piece that it doesn't get to dies. There's death where there's no blood. Okay? Shed enough blood in my body, cut my throat, and enough blood comes out. There's a moment where my life is over because the lifeblood stops. Now, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel practiced what was called a sin offering. In Hebrew, it's called the hataf. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in and he was, was solemnly, he would offer a sin offering, the lifeblood of an animal was carried into the Holy of Holies, and you know the story, into the tabernacle, and sprinkled on the mercy seat. Sin offerings were presented five annual times, and on the occasion of the consecration of a priest. What was actually being done, if you will, through these sin offerings? What was actually being done? What was being done is life was being taken. Life was being lost. What life? The life of an animal. How was the life of the animal lost? It was lost by its bl blood being taken, drained from it. Did the animal die? Every time. Always death when the animal for a sacrifice was killed. When the blood was taken, the blood was drained to the point where the life was taken too. So it's not just the shedding of blood that was necessary. It was the loss of life in addition, in conjunction, with the shedding of blood. What did this represent in the Old Testament? The loss of something that was experiencing life in increments of time. That's what it represented. The loss of a life that was experiencing it through increments of time. It was a loss of a precious animal, one that meant something to the people, that was valuable, that provided them with milk and food and, and wool and, 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 and were uh, friends of the family sometimes, lived among the kids. So its remaining time on earth in the flesh, which was nourished by the blood, sacrificed. Why? For sin. Why sacrifice the life of a beloved animal by shedding its blood and taking its life for sin? Because, listen, you ready? Sin is always the taking of someone's life. Sin is 
the taking away of life. And we know that life is equal to time. So sin is, is measured in how much time we steal from others. That's how you can look at it. And since life is quantified by increments of time, it must be redeemed by the loss of time of an animal that could be living. So, let's take an example. When we gossip, the theft of life, what is it? Well, it takes time from others who think about the gossip, share it. It takes time, it steals from the one who's gossiped about, who has to go and try to fix the rumor, try to deny the rumor, try to repair their reputation. So our mouths, we are capable of taking life when we use our mouth improperly. Uh, lies, the obfuscation, people have to go to work to try to overcome the truth. You know, lies, you know, that's the big one. Uh, meanness, people, you know, when, you, when someone treats you mean when you're young, that sometimes stays with you all the way until you're in your late, till you're ready to die. People still have those wounds from when you were in junior high and someone said you walk funny. I mean, just meanness is an automatic loss of life in another person. Theft, uh, obvious, you know, you work hard, you buy a bicycle, someone steals it. They have stolen the amount of time you have put in to save up and buy the bike. Covetousness, you know, rape, the after effects. And you can see that there's kind of a, a chronology here in terms of order of egregiousness, which is why there were certain punishments that were more severe in the Old Testament for certain sin, like murder and adultery and rape, and not as bad for other things. It's because of the loss of time that occurs when someone would perform one of these. So obviously murder is the exact taking of life from someone else. That is the pure loss. Now listen, you ready for this? All sin, in some way or another, if you want to see it in what I think is the right way, is an act of murder. All sin is an act of murder. God is love. God is life. God is light. The antithesis to that is darkness and death. Satan is the father of, he's the murderer from the beginning. And so every time we sin in one way or another, if you want to put it that way, we are stealing time from someone else we are stealing the life from them, and that's what makes it a sin. Therefore, Satan was truly a murderer from the beginning. So, an ultimate sacrifice was required. An ultimate sacrifice of blood and life in order to propitiate in this realm for the sins occurring in this realm. In light of these factors, we see the need for the ultimate taking of life through the ultimate shedding of blood to occur for the sins of the world to be ultimately and eternally forgiven. In this case, the blood of animals wouldn't have sufficed, but the perfect blood of a being in whom there was no defilement, that would suffice in the realm of space and time to take care of the loss of life that occurs through our sin by the giving of his life. Animal blood may have been able to propitiate, that's the word that the Jews would use, it would cover the sin for the time being, but the writer of Hebrews says, don't kid yourselves, animal blood never took away sin. It had to only be Christ. So, having overcome his flesh without sin, and then paid for sin of the world by freely choosing to offer up his own life, and we could probably suggest philosophically Jesus never would have died because he had no sin. 
there'd be no reason for him to have expired because there's no corruption in him. He's born of a virgin. So he offers himself up through the shedding of blood, dying as a result, like all animals. And we look to him through faith, trusting that he did this on our behalf. We're justified by God's grace through this faith. And our alienation and unrest for the theft of time from other people's lives is completely forgiven. And we're restored to life, uh, not only here, but guaranteed eternal life there because we have been completely reconciled to him through this beautiful, righteous, judicious act that God said, I'm not a good God if I stand up here and just say, fixed, I have to come into their realm and do it. And that's why I see it. So recipients, one more thing, of his shed blood begin to willingly be Christ to others. And we begin to do the very thing in our, and with our lives that he did with his. Scripture refers to us redeeming back the time. What does that mean? It means that in my youth, I spent a lot of time doing a lot of bad things. Now that I am saved, I realize, whoa, I stole a lot of time from people in the, doing those bad things. Scripture now says we ought to try to redeem the time. What does that mean? That means give time to people instead of take time and life from them. So look at, we have a list there. We can choose as Christians to have a listening ear. What does that do? It means that we're sacrificing our TV time or our video time or our golf time and listening to the problems of another person. That helps them get life back, redeeming the time. We can give service. We can volunteer and help. We can, we can give money, which is just packets of time earned. We spent our time working, laboring to get money. That money is given to another who's in need of it. That is a bestowal of your time in their hands for their needs. That's why it's a sacrifice from the heart for those of faith. And it can't be mandated in terms of you must do this because then it becomes a law. I have it down here, prayers. Prayers are huge because what you're doing is you're spending your lifetime, which you could be playing racquetball or doing something else, and you are thinking of the problems and needs of another person, and you're going to God as an intercessor for on behalf of that person and their problems, and you're giving them life back. And it goes through hospitality, encouraging others, sharing with others, teaching somebody, inspiring others. So all of these things and more require time on the giver's part. And all the time given is a loss of life on your behalf. You are losing, you're sacrificing some of your life for them. <clears throat> and this is where Christian service, acts of Christianity come into play by virtue of the Spirit moving you to do that. It's, I don't think you need to have someone tell you, okay, this week you need to go and, and serve at the kitchen for the homeless for three hours because our church is doing that. And you're like, oh, gosh, I'll do it because Joe's going to be there and he's my neighbor and I want him to know that I care too. So I'll, Joe's going. I better. It doesn't work like that. That's just religion. But when the Holy Spirit is moving you to be more selfless, and reaching out to others to bestow that life back into them, life that some of which you may have taken in your years of sin, 
That's what the whole purpose of Christian works are. And that's the reason, uh, hopefully in a good summary, why Christ, God, the Word of God, had to take on flesh, become man, die, suffer, bleed for us, and that God just didn't snap his fingers. All right, let's wrap up part three of Satan. We have emails to get to, and uh, we'll see where that goes. It wasn't until the New Testament that Satan begins to become the personification of evil uh, and a sinister opponent against God as a being. Um, and this, this stuff is not made up by me. I've consulted a lot of very scholarly people who research it, and I look at their stuff. Some are right, some are wrong. I'm wrong. But as we said in the weeks before in the Old Testament, Satan's mostly talked about, if at all, in the book of Job. And there he's depicted as when the sons of God gathered together, Satan was among them. And as a being that has both access to God and one that was under God's direction directly. You go do this. You go do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. Very unusual thing because in the New Testament on out to today, we have people saying that Satan's like, take this God. And God's like, take that Satan. There's this battle. But in the Old Testament, God was in control. We also know that the Old Testament seems to assign all things, good and evil, and we showed this then, to God, not to ha-satan in the Hebrew, and uh, not to a New Testament nemesis that had the ability to counteract God and, and go against him. There's some things in the Old, but very, very little. The Jews didn't have that idea. It appears, appears that somewhere between the Old Testament and the New Testament, Satan morphed from a being with a specific office to accuse, that was his Old Testament office, to becoming something of a tempter and a deceiver. The deceiver part seemed to come in a little bit more than. Not saying it wasn't always there, but it was just revealed more in the New Testament. R.H. Charles, he's an, he's an expert on the apocryphal texts of the New Testament, traces the early stages of Satan's transformation back to the apocryphal texts in the 2nd and 3rd century BC. There is also an idea that Persian demonology during the Jewish diaspora, that means when the Jews were scattered out after the Babylonian uh, uh, captivity, that this stuff started to help solidify Satan as an evil being rather than just a heavenly being that was assigned a job to go and accuse. It's interesting that after being baptized and God saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, that the next thing we read in Matthew chapter 4 is, then was Jesus led up of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Again, and we, I just, because of the order of the way Satan suddenly comes out at the same time Jesus being born of a woman and made flesh comes out in the New Testament, I can't help but wonder, Wonder, Daddy, wonder. I wonder, just wonder, if when the Word became flesh, if somehow darkness also became personified in a being. Now, I, I don't, I just wonder why we would have such absence of, of information about Satan throughout most of the Old Testament, but when Jesus, the Word, became flesh, suddenly Satan becomes the absolute deceiver and embodiment of all darkness. Uh, anyway, just a thought. So when Jesus speaks of Satan as a murderer from the beginning, and our natural inclination is to view him as a, a dark being created by God to be evil, 
maybe he started off at, as a role, as an accuser, and, or maybe he started off processionally and consummately became more and more evil and embodied the spirit of darkness and death to where in time Jesus took on flesh, Satan was a full embodiment as well. In the New Testament, the liar and archenemy of God is best expressed in the book of Revelation, and, uh, which is where Satan appears to get a lot of stuff assigned to him. And beliefs about Satan held by Christians and Mormons uh, alike are mostly derived from passages like Revelation 12:7 that say that Satan waged a war in heaven and that he drew a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth, that's Revelation 12:4, and that he engaged in works of blasphemy and deceit, that's Revelation 13:1 through 14, and that he would be locked in a bottomless pit, that's Revelation 23. Most Christians and Mormons today see these passages as depicting scenes from before the earth was. That th these are describing Satan before anything happened, okay? But a number of biblical scholars think it's possible that what those uh, passages are actually describing is an end time, an end time view of what Satan was doing, and uh, which John clearly believed they were in when he wrote Revelation and also his epistles. So that's another way to kind of wonder about. Don't need to say it certainly, but just consider it. Um, it didn't take long in Christianity, however, for Satan to be seen as the fallen angel who sought to be like God uh, in the beginning of all things and taken a third of the hosts of heaven. He was cast to earth to tempt and try to beguile us. I do believe that this subject can be discussed more within reason, revisited, not dogmatically, but with a little more attention to a couple things. The Garden of Eden term serpent, we talked about that. What does that mean? To the way Satan is described and used in Job, what does that mean relative to who he is, if it is a he, to how God accepts responsibility for good and evil throughout the Old Testament, says he does it, but now Satan in the New Testament times, he becomes the embodiment of all those things. How the description of the king of Babylon cannot be assigned to Satan, including the name Lucifer, cannot be assigned to Satan, at least not in the context which it, with which it was written, and how Revelation may be describing end times and not pre-earth times of this accusatory force. So, quickly, in Mormonism, the Book of Mormon speaks of Satan in the classic Christian sense. Um, it says that he, quote, flattereth away and telleth them that there is no hell, and he saith unto them, I am no devil, and for there is none, end quote. That's from the Book of Mormon. This seems to be a direct rebuttal of a popular idea at Joseph Smith's time from the Universalists, who said there's no Satan and there's no hell. Early LDS views of Satan are very Christian. Uh, the, an angel of God who became the devil is how they would teach it. Second Nephi 2.17 says, having sought that which was evil before God. So Satan had an independent spirit, created, ran amok, turned against God, arch enemy, nemesis. Mormonism puts that in very early in their uh, ideas where the Bible, Satan's not mentioned in Genesis. We, we say that. Later we learn that the serpent was the embodiment of Satan from Paul, but that goes into a whole Greek discussion that we won't take the time here. But Mormonism trumps this. What Joseph Smith did is, uh, did is say, I'm going to describe exactly what was going on in that Garden of Eden and let me do it. And so he started speaking of Satan as this figure, a being, angelic being fallen that was very active in that place. 
During Joseph Smith's life, nothing in the standard works of Mormonism, included, re, including recorded church history, says that Satan or his angels were fallen spirit children of God. Now remember, Mormons believe that we were all spirit children. Nothing during Joseph Smith's life or histories does he ever say that Satan was a spirit child of God. The notion that Satan and his angels were God's literal offspring didn't surface until after Joseph Smith died. And then it became kind of a standard for the faith. In a letter to William Smith, Joseph Smith's son, dated December 25th, 1844, W.W. W. Phelps said, quote, Lucifer, son of the morning, was the next heir to Jesus Christ, our eldest brother. This is where it got its legs. We didn't get it from before, though it could be interpreted as having been given before, but not directly from Smith. Then W.W. Phelps added that this Lucifer lost his first estate, quote, by offering to save men in their sins on the honor of a God or in his father's honor. It's a strange quote. So in my opinion, I believe that both the LDS and Christians today, to summarize it all before we go to the phone lines and the emails, is I think Christians and the LDS give far, far too much attention to Satan and his angels and darkness and to temptation. Uh, and that's my opinion. And while I know that the darkness continues to be a tangible thing in this life, and I know that evil certainly does exist in this life, which I believe is a better proof of God than to disprove God, uh, I personally believe that Satan and his angels have been neutered, completely neutered by the finished work of Christ. Now, uh, we do seem to continually face temptation, so it's possible that God allows Satan to continue to tempt us. But when I say neutered, I mean he has no power. There is no afterlife power of Satan if Christ has had the victory. And, uh, and he can't have any long-term victory. All he's doing is rendering us ineffective as Christians and keeping those who don't accept Christ from accepting Christ. That's what he seems to be doing. Uh, but I think that uh, 2,000 years ago, Christ had the victory and uh, Satan might allow, be allowed to continue to cause chaos and corruption and even pull us from the light, but God wins. I don't think that Satan, through, after Christ had a victory on the cross and overcame all things, I don't think Satan has a leg to stand on. I think if ever the idea of Satan before God was pictured in Scripture uh, of what he is presently, it's in Job. I think now Satan is going before God and God's saying, hey, Satan, you know, I want you to do this. Okay, all right. I want you to do this. Okay, all right. I think this, this battle ended on the cross. And when Christ rose from the grave, forget about it. Uh, the inclination of every Christian, instead of cursing the darkness, might be to, sh to shine a light. And uh, I'm also of the opinion that prior to receiving Jesus, all people are naturally egocentric and self-centered, and that Satan might accentuate these natural uh, inclinations that we have. But once a person has received the king, Satan is rendered neuter in their life, unless we choose to invite him in and allow him to reign for a period of time. But if, if Christ is with us and we're seeking Christ, Satan can come and, you know, hold a, a donut in front of our face. But I just don't think there's any power at all. Um, could be wrong. Just some observations, but it seems in Mormonism and Christianity, there's a lot of people who love to focus on Satan and love to talk about uh, his angels and demons and possession. And, blah. and you know, it's, I think it's better to, to focus on the Lord. He had the victory, and that's where you're going to find the strength in your life.
So let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. Before we go to the spot, we have Dale in North Reading, and then we have a question. I was wondering if you could explain the meaning of 1 Corinthians 7, 13. What does it mean the non-believer is sanctified? Good question. Let's go to a spot. We'll come back to Dale in Reading, Massachusetts. The spirit is the gunfight. The Spirit is what we want to rely on in reaching people, and we don't want to use the Word of God, though it is sharper than any two-edged sword, to stab and kill one another with. In my humble opinion, Knife to a Gunfight is one of the most important books that uh, we've produced in, uh, ever, and we hope you'll give it a chance. It's about misinterpreting the purpose and place of the Bible. It addresses the great things about the Word of God, uh, the book I spend my life in, love it. But this book goes into how we've taken this, the Word of God and we've used it as a knife and we've stabbed each other with it, and we've parted each other with it, instead of uniting with the content and letting it build us up in love and in the spirit. So consider getting it, hotm.tv, knife to a gunfight. All right, let's go to Dale in Massachusetts. Dale, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. How you doing, my sister? I remember being that. I remember being tormented. <laughs> I do well at that. Listen, I have a question that's been bugging me for a long time. Um, and it's not necessarily completely related to what you're talking about tonight, but the LDS hierarchy. Um, the, the 12, the 70, the 50, all those people, they know the truth, don't they? You know, it's a great question, Dale, because uh, the reason why it's great is because there's so many differing opinions on it. You talk to some people who have left the Mormon church and they say, they know, they're, they're diabolically doing it. And then there's other people who say, they're, they're just going by what they believe and, and they're true believers and they're doing it. So it's really, it's really hard to tell. I, I, you know, it's just an opinion. It's just an opinion. However, I would say this. By the time they become apostles, I think yes. they know. Exactly my point. Exactly. By the time they become apostles, they must know. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah. Yeah, because, the, okay. All right, well, thank you. And, um, but how do they justify it is the question. How do you suppose they justify continuing on in a deception? Well, you know, you talk about evil tonight. I mean, to me, we, we talked about this at my Bible study. What is evil? Evil is doing something when you, you know it's wrong. Yeah. I, I mean, and I just, it just seems so evil. It's, it's all about control. Uh, and I would imagine a, a lot of them are just fearful of the dominoes falling and everything crumbling around them and being lost. Yeah. Yeah, I would imagine that's a huge pressure. I also believe that some of them believe it's the best thing going and they don't think there's any real solution in Protestantism or Catholicism or Buddhism. So they justify the their lie by thinking we're doing what's good in this, in this world, which is not a justification at all. 
I know, I know, but that, but even even with that justification, as you call it, they're still, um, you know, they're 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 controlling and they're keeping people trapped, and it's it's just awful. I mean, I've I've never been LDS. I don't know what drew me to this um, curiosity about it about it, but the more I research it, the more I have to pray about them because it's just really sad. It's really sad. I'm really wow. glad you do, and I'm glad you were turned on to it because through you, I was chastised about the value of bankers. Thanks, my sister. All right. Well, thank you, Sean, for all you do and all you are, and give my love to your lovely wife. Okay, I'll do it. Thanks so much, Dale. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, two more calls, and then we'll see if we can get to this one question. I got a lot of emails, but three more calls. Let's go to... Uh, uh, who is that? Anthony in Mesa, Arizona. Anthony, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean. Woo! <laughs> How you doing, man? Hey, I'm good. I've uh, been watching your show for a long time, and uh, I have no idea what's going on like with your uh, previous callers, because I'm actually just calling you on my cell phone. Oh. So uh, I'll, I guess I'll catch up uh, when I'm able to watch it. So it's yeah. pretty exciting. Yeah, it is. So what's up? Hey, uh, kind of a couple of questions with, uh, I don't know, I, it's pretty interesting to actually talk to you, so I'm kind of like, ah, but it's funny. So, um, I, like, uh, re- referencing Paul from Galatians. Yeah. Because, um, you know, adding to, you know, the works, or at least adding to the, uh, the scriptures, um, uh, Paul was talking to the Jews, I was assuming, or Christians that were previously Jews. Right. And I guess I'm curious to uh, see how, like, the Bible wasn't constructed at that time. So, I don't know, I'm just curious uh, your opinion on that. And uh, another thing is, is uh, out here, at least in my predicament with, uh, say, Mormonism, LDS stuff, um, like I'm a part of the church, I am a member, but I talk to my bishop, and I am pretty hardcore Christian with uh, my ethic to him about my doctrines and beliefs. So I don't know. Maybe it's just I'm lucky in my circumstance. Uh, I pretty much avoid everything kind of dating-wise out here. And I'm not from here, so I guess that helps. Like, no one really knows me. Yeah. But, I don't know, just ultimately um, trying to get over my nervousness because I've listened to you for, like, you know, a few years. And I've listened <laughs> to you quite a bit. Well, so, you're doing, you're doing <laughs> fine. Uh, let me answer your question, or try to, with Galatians, first of all. We know that, he was, that Paul was probably, even though he was called to uh, the Gentiles... He's writing to the believers in Galatia, and in all probability they were Jews because he warns them about reverting back to Judaism. So we know that they probably had that, and so your assessment of who he was writing to is right. And, okay. But what, the thing I didn't understand was, what was your question about there not being a Bible at that time? Well, okay, okay. To, uh, I'm not as nervous as I was, and so I have a little bit more clear mind. <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, with how the New Testament was formalized and that was there, 
and me trying to, when I was kind of a fledgling kind of LDS member back in the day, well, like five years ago back in the day. So um, it's like, how do we, like, say me trying to defend my faith in Christianity or my faith really in Christ? And because uh, I'm really on board with you as a Christian anarchist. And if I was in the Salt Lake area, I would so be all over that. But, um, like, because I'm trying to also, you know, listen to your previous messages about, you know, not just trying to, like, you know, my faith is in, my faith is in Christ. And how, like, like, I feel like, sadly, like a sheep in wolf's clothing. And I'm just trying for myself, too, to keep a peace of mind. And to, to answer your question, um, like, the constructs of the New Testament, you know, when he says that, but yet it almost seems like the New Testament in itself is like an addition to Got it. the prior, um, like, you know, Old Testament and Jewish, yeah. Jewish uh, writings. Okay. So if you can give me a clarification on that, that'd be cool. Well, you, it is in a sense, and that is one reason why the Jews would reject everything that came post intertestamentary period where that's the period where the prophecy stopped the Jews would say there's no more it was done so when you're talking about justifying your faith through the New Testament the only thing I could say is that these guys wrote to the believers at that time and we can learn great spiritual in insights from what they had to say but it certainly couldn't have be, couldn't be a new law for us it couldn't be, because the law has been abolished and it's not in, written in ink so this is the whole premise behind a uh, knife to a gunfight is I don't think uh, we're, we're going to be able to I don't think we're going to be able to win the war of proving who is right by using the New Testament. I think it's a spiritual thing. So, for instance, you're a good case in point. Who am I to judge you, Anthony? You're LDS. You're still going, but you believe in Christ Jesus. You you have professed this to your bishop. Who knows where God is leading you and how he's doing it? So how come I just can't say, hey, let's just keep talking and working through things and see where God leads instead of, wait a minute, Anthony, you need to and you need to and you need to. Does that make sense? Oh, yes, because, you know, like I've tried going to some Christian churches out here and it's just, I don't know, there's just, it's very interesting how the Lord has led me. And like today, I actually started uh, being a daycare teacher of all things. Huh. And uh, it's just really interesting for me to see how the Lord's leading me as I listen to Him and read the Word. And uh, last time I read the Book of Mormon, I couldn't even tell you. Yeah. So it's just trust. I don't know, it's just, trust that Anthony. Trust how the Lord is leading you, and don't let everybody else's opinions of this or that. Just keep letting Him lead you. You keep trusting Him because that's all you're going to be able to rely upon in the end anyway. It won't, certainly won't be a pastor or a church or anything else. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah. Hey, can we send you knife to a gunfight? Oh, that'd be awesome. Okay, stay on, the, stay on the line. Thanks for watching, and someone will pick up and get your address. All right, well, thank you. All right, my brother. Thanks for watching. Bye. We're going to Rick in South Jordan. Rick, you're on Heart of the Matter. Rick. Rickster. Ladies. <laughs> he just disappeared from my screen. I yelled ladies and they took it off. Like an ostrich. I, they can't see me. I'm, my eyes are closed. 
I'm just kidding you, ladies. All right, we're going to Mark in Alberta, Canada. Mark, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi. Hi, Sean. Hey. I, I wanted to mention to you, um, you know, when uh, I was watching your uh, campus uh, I think the other day, when you're talking about uh, the, like, we can't sin unless we fall into the dark darkness, which is the lost. Yeah. You mentioned that on campus? Yeah. I think it was in the meet, I think. Yeah, we're going to follow and, that up next week. But yes, go ahead. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll be there with bells on. And, um, <laughs> and uh, anyhow, um, uh, but, you know, that's where Satan can get a hold of us, right? That's where Satan grasps us and puts strongholds on us and, and, and things like that. Through the law? But I want... What's that? Through the law? Through the law. Yeah. In the law, yeah. Absolutely. And so so I wanted to mention to you, there was a revival that went on up here in Edmonton uh, this past weekend, and one of the pastors that, uh, Max Albrecht, and uh, he's actually he's in his 80s now, but he used to do worldwide, uh, like, go fill up stadiums over in, like, Africa and everywhere across the world, right? Back in the 70s, 80s, whatever, 90s. And... Um, Anyhow, um, he was mentioning a, a, a situation where a young man, he had, point, he had pointed to a young man in this revival thing that was going on. I think it was in uh, Texan Caicos, if I'm saying that. Church in Caicos? Oh, I, my I've heard of it. Anyhow, yeah. Anyhow, um, he had, uh, had uh, uh, said uh, something to this, uh, this young man to come forward, you know, basically to you know, come up to the altar call and, um, and his friends kept on blocking him. So, you know, and that's where Satan's getting him. And they finally got out of there after the third time. And when, um, this pastor had come back, uh, from his travels back to, back to Canada, he got, this young man had been in an accident, um, and, uh, got pinned under, of course, you know, safety regulations like we have in our countries, but, but he got, the, his truck had uh, went off on a, a cliff, and then uh, he got pinned underneath the, underneath the truck. And the rescuers, he only had, you know, not very long to live. And he got to the hospital, and they asked for his pastor to come. And his pa he said, you know, I can, you know, have you, and I don't agree with the, uh, you know, the final death thing or whatever, but this, you know how they just say the sinner's prayer and all that. It's kind of a, a cop-out thing. But anyhow, this young man that said no, he said, just tell the pastor from Canada that um, for the last seven days, I've been feeling myself being pulled away, and he's been feeling cold and everything. And he knew that demons were coming together. Like, he knew that his life... Now, not to say, when you talk about in, in campus and in other programs you've had, not that they're not going to get refined, but they are going to get go to hell to get through that process, right? I've, and I, so yeah. I, what I'm just saying is, is that, you know, we could put ourselves in that situation where Satan can have a hold on us. Oh. And, if, and, the, and that's what I'm just trying to get at. It's not, uh, you know, Satan is real and we can't dismiss him is what I'm saying. Yeah. And if we sit there and... Uh, and, and, you know, think he's like something from The Exorcist or something on you know, your pea soup coming out of your mouth. <laughs> that's not the reality of it. You right. know, that's just Hollywood. But, it's just, you know, it's, it's us, 
moving away from God, living in the law, and then give Satan his clutches to be in our existence. Amen, my brother. Um, Thank you for... Hey. God bless. God bless you, Mark. Talk to you later. Hey. We're going to go to uh, Chad in Santa Rosa, California, and then Rick in South Jordan, but I want to read this really quickly. Uh, this is Paul, and this, my Bible was open to this, and it says... For, Paul says, for if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. What he's talking about is if I go back to the law, which was destroyed, I make myself a sinner. Because it's the law that makes us sinful. Put a law in front of us, you either obey it, you disobey it. You're either proud because you obeyed it, or you're sinful because you disobeyed it. Either way, you're a sinner. The law makes you sinful. He says, for I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. The minute you go from being a believer by faith in him and saved by his grace to re-embracing laws, you go back into transgression and that's how you sin in the New Testament context. Now everyone else thinks it's, oh, I, I masturbated, oh, I got drunk, oh, I shot my dog. And it's the law that makes us sinful. And Paul is very clear throughout all of his epistles that that is what you have to look out for. And, and so we, our flesh, will do those other ugly, heinous things. But it's the sin of the law that you have to be careful of because that is, it, when you re-embrace that, you heap upon yourself justification before God through the law. And when you do that, it's bye-bye fathead in my estimation. It's because you have trampled underfoot the grace of God. You've trampled underfoot Jesus Christ who came, who lived the law for you. So anytime it starts to sneak in on you, reject it. Do not become a legalist because it is a form of, of Christ denial in essence. Because you're saying what he did is not enough. I need to obey certain way, and that's why I'm so against it. All right, let's go to uh, Chad on the air in Santa Rosa. He's on the air. What line? Thank you. Line one. Chad, go for it. Hey, how's it going, Sean? I'm a long-time listener. I'm still actually trying to catch up on 2012, but I figured I'd listen tonight because uh, the subject matter was really interesting, interesting to me. Awesome. Um, not, not interesting because I'm interested in Satan, but I just feel like today in the media nowadays, um, Satan is everywhere. Yeah. And it's, it, it's, uh, it's, almost, uh, it's almost frightening to me. Yeah. Um, how do you, how, how do you, how do you uh, combat this, like, this onslaught of symbolism that we are getting in the media? Do you just turn the media off? I mean, I don't, I don't watch much media unless it's produced. It has nothing to do with that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, it's, Jesus said when he was alive, Satan is now bound. He said that when he was walking the earth in John. I think it's chapter 9. So if he said that before he even went to the cross, when he had victory over, I don't know why we continue to continue to harp and look for Satan and everything. Mm. Yeah. Are we looking for it? Are we looking for it, or is it pushed in our face? I, I don't know. I don't know, uh, Chad. I don't know what, why it is people want to often insert him in everything that they do. Uh, why not just, just look to God, praise God, have the victory. Satan is bound. We're believers. He can't affect us. 
Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I, I happened to be on uh, YouTube and I saw, I was looking up something else and I saw like hundreds of videos about the satanic this in Hollywood and the satanic this in music and the satanic that and the worship of Satan and this and Beelzebub and the upside down and this and that. And it just becomes a religion in and of itself. It's like Satan worship. They do so much study on him. Uh, That's true. That's yeah. true. It's like a trick. Yeah, it's a trick. He is, he is the father of lies, right? He is the father of lies. I would just prefer to look for Christ and everything and seek him to be my solution rather than to point the finger at Satan as being the, the one who tricked me uh, and take responsibility for my evil, for listening to the darkness, listening to Satan in the first place. I, I want Christ. I don't want Satan. Yeah. Anyway, good call, Chad. Thanks for calling, my friend. Thank you, Sean. Appreciate what you do, and I love you. Love you, too. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Sure. Okay, bye. It's nice when men can say they love each other on the air. You know, I, I think that's a nice thing, to tell people you love them. I think it's a nice thing that we can do with each other. All people, all people and all believers, tell them you love them. It's really funny when you tell certain types of people you love them. Oh, man, it's like, oh, I'm afraid to move. You might touch me inappropriately. <laughs> it's not that kind of love, buddy. <laughs> I love you as a brother, and I don't touch my brother inappropriately. Unless we're in the tub and we're five. All right? Let's go to Rick in South Jordan. Sean. What's up, Rick? Long time listener, first time caller. Glad you I have. Wanted, always wanted to say that. <laughs> so, you know, um, Satan was working on me because I burnt some cigar ash, so I dropped the call. <laughs> <laughs> We've um, got another mark. We've got another Mark from Ireland, but this is Rick from South Jordan. Hey, uh, quick question. You know, we were talking about Satan earlier, or not Satan, about um, you, uh, in your, uh, uh, about Jesus and dying for our sins. Yeah. And um, the thought that I have is the Old Testament um, uh, always pointed towards a Savior that would die for their sins. And, of course, they, they did sacrifices in the temples. You know, like as you talked about. Yeah. And um, the early apostles of Jesus were all Jews. Um, the Bible and the New Testament was written to Jews, um, to those people that were looking for that literal um, Messiah, that sin offering, and they would teach that in the synagogues. Yeah. Um, and it's a literal, t you know, they, and of course, you know, the Old Testament was taken very literal, um, you know, from, you know, we needed a blood sacrifice, we needed, you know, so we had to kill you know, animals or, um, you know, a lot of the other stories that are taken very literal. And so I think, for me, I'm thinking even Christ's story, because they were teaching it to Jews to convert Jews uh, to Christ as a literal story of what they were looking for. Now, Jesus himself, what he did, he sacrificed himself and he showed love and he taught us to love. Um, and so to be, to, in my mind, to be a Christian is to follow Christ and to follow his example. Um, but I'm wondering about the literacy, literacy of um, needing a blood offering for, this, for sin. You know, I can understand it, you know, scripturally when you take it literal, but when you look at it as, you know, being a follower of Christ and follow what he did and maybe not necessarily take it, you know, take it to that extent, but... I consider myself a Christian, a follower of Christ. I love Christ, follow Christ. Um, 
So let me and, ask you uh, this, let me ask you this, Rick. Do you believe that his blood was necessary for your uh, sin? I don't know. I don't think so. Uh, uh, well, the way I would answer this is I, I, I personally absolutely am convinced and convicted that it was necessary and for all the reasons I mentioned before and pl plenty more. But And I would challenge you to continue to search through the scripture to see if that unfolds to you as well. Um, I, I won't be anyone to judge you, but I would say that I think it's really important to understand that the life was given, and in the life, uh, that was the ultimate form of love. Greater ha love has no, yeah. And no, arg no arguments for me on that, absolutely. I mean, to give, Christ gave his life um, in love for us. And that example... But is, you have a problem with the blood. ...following an exemplify yeah. um, in his life, for sure. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that's why I still consider myself a Christian at this point. You know, I'm still working, trying to figure out, you know, my, my own, you know, thoughts out. But um, it does seem kind of barbaric that a blood offering is going to have to be given, you know, to cover sin. And to me, I look at it, I, you know, it seems like, um, again, the literal, you know, you take those things so literal. Not you, I mean, in general. Uh, mm -hmm. But they have other meanings, you know, like the love that he gave. I mean, Christ gave himself for us. Mm -hmm. And that, there is no greater sacrifice mm -hmm. than that. And it's quite possible that people can accept that and be uh, children of God as, as readily as someone who's more theologically oriented understands the need for propitiation in blood. So that's why I, it's not something I'm going to, because there are people who probably do not understand why the blood or what the blood, but say, I know he came and died for me. So, you know, it's a, it's a tough thing. And I know this is very liberal because people are going to be pulling their hair out and they call, uh, you know, t talk shows and say McCraney is the biggest heretic. But I'm going to side with people who profess Christ and say, I believe in Christ. And we're going to let the minutia fall to judgment if it's going to be there and how we're how we are viewed by God when we die you have the right to your opinion but if you say you accept Christ and he's your he's your savior he's your lord i'm not going to divide on whether you understand what blood atonement means versus propitiation versus mercy seat versus all those other things that most people don't get anyway well and and that's that's why that's why i love you brother you know cuz uh, i mean i think we all have to work these things out in our minds yeah, that makes sense to us, um, and you know, it's kind of following kind of what Anthony was saying too. Because I think sometimes some of these things don't make sense, and a lot of us that came out of Mormonism, you know, we have to we have to wrap our brain in, in pretzels to make things work, and you know, some of us don't want to wrap ourselves in a pretzel anymore. I know, my okay. brother. Love you, and uh, thanks for calling. I always wanted to say that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Love you, brother. Thanks, my brother. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. We have Mark in Ireland, but Mark. Timing's important. In Ireland, you guys sleep till noon, you work till two, you go back to the bar. Here, time is important. You've called after hours. So we're not going to be able to take you tonight, Mark. I'm sorry. We hope you will pick up the way we do things here in America if you're going to call from Ireland. I will get to the question about 1 Corinthians 7.14, I promise, at the beginning of the show next week. Next, next week. And I will also cover General Cobra's the first question 
Do you think it is easier to preach to someone who's a non-believer or someone who thinks they're going to heaven like a Catholic or Mormon? Think about that yourselves. We'll cover those when we open next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the man's awake, a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know, and I can feel the light-filled monkeys start 